or uh, reading this morning is uh, in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. And I will read in a different tongue. Après cela, j'ai regardé et voici, il y avait une grande foule que personne ne pouvait compter. De toute nation, de toute tribu, de tout peuple et de toute langue. Il se, dit, il se tenait devant le trône et devant l'agneau, revêtu des robes blanches et des palmes dans leurs mains. Et il criait dans une voix, en disant, le salut est à notre Dieu, qui est assis sur le trône et l'agneau. Et tous les anges se tenaient autour du trône, et des vieillards et des quatre êtres vivants. Ils se posternent sur le face devant le trône, et ils adoraient Dieu, en disant, Amen, la louange, la gloire, la sagesse, la force, l'honneur, la puissance, soit à notre Dieu au siècle des siècles. Amen. Sitongangu, 俯伏在宝座前敬拜上帝，说：“阿门，颂赞、荣耀、智慧、感谢、尊贵、全能、力量都归于我们的上帝，直到永永远远。阿门。”Después de esto miré y vi una gran multitud que nadie podía contar, de todas las naciones, tribus, pueblos y lenguas, de pie delante del trono y delante del cordero, vestidos con vestiduras blancas y con palmas en las manos, y clamaban a gran voz diciendo, la salvación pertenece a nuestro Dios, que está sentado en el trono, y al Cordero. Y todos los ángeles estaban de pie alrededor del trono, y alrededor de los ancianos, y de los cuatro seres vivientes, y cayeron sobre sus rostros delante del trono, y adoraron a Dios diciendo, Amén, la bendición, la gloria, la sabiduría, la acción de gracias, el honor, el poder y la fortaleza sean a nuestro Dios. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
Thanks to all four of you for um, helping us to catch a vision for our passage this morning. Uh, welcome everyone to Christ Community's downtown campus. My name is Mike. I'm a pastor on staff here, and it's great to see you all. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I hope that it was a restful time for you to step aside from the routines of life to uh, kind of take some time and count your blessings and to be thankful for what God has given you. My wife, Courtney, and my son Eli and I had, for the first time in months, a day where the three of us could just sit still and be with each other. It was absolutely amazing. I say all these things knowing that um, the holiday season is a time that brings to the surface and amplifies a lot of emotions, both positive and negative. And for some of us, it might be easy to count our blessings and be thankful this holiday season. For others, uh, it might be more difficult. You might be going through the pain of loss or find yourself in an unexpected um, and unwanted chapter in your life. Um, you might be in another holiday season in that chapter, thinking, hoping that the next one will be the one that will be gone. Um, if that describes you, I'd like to take a moment before we dive into the message today and just, uh, just pray for you and pray for us as a family. So will you bow your heads as I pray? Our Father, we, we are so thankful for the blessings you have, in, have given us, which are too many to count. Above all, we are thankful that you have looked upon our helpless state and sent your Son to make payment for our sins so that our relationship with you could be restored. We're thankful that we can gather here this morning and worship you together without fear of reprisal or persecution. And yet, Lord, for those who this holiday season are experiencing the pain of loss or the uncertainty of a new chapter in their life, we ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would descend upon them in comfort. Lord, your word promises that those who will come before you and lay their requests at your feet will find a peace that passes all understanding. May it be so, Father, for those who we lift up in prayer to you today in the name of Jesus. Amen. Listen, from the very beginning, we as a church have sought to be a caring family. And so if there is any way during this holiday season, especially, that we can be a caring family for you, please come talk to me after the service. I'd love um, to walk through that with you, okay? Well, some of you may remember a commercial that was on the air during the World Cup last summer. Uh, it was a commercial, it was a story, a short story about a man who was trying to make the trek from his office to the TV in his living room without finding out the final score of the game he was recording. Anybody remember this commercial? He runs out of his office with his head down so he won't see the score on somebody else's computer screen. He throws his phone in the back seat so he won't get a notification or a text or a tweet. And he, he jumps out of his car as he parks it in the driveway and yells at his neighbor, zip it, Brian, because Brian's about to spoil the end of the game for him. He runs into his house, locks the door behind him, and makes a sigh of relief. He made it home only to have his daughter run up to him and say, Daddy, we won. <laughs> Anybody else have the end of a story ruined for you? Maybe you're reading through a book or you're catching up on a show like on Netflix or something. You're watching a TV show or you're watching a movie or maybe it is that you recorded a sports game and somebody just ruins the ending for you. Isn't it the worst? Because when you know the end of a story, it totally changes how you engage the rest of the story, doesn't it? Now, a lot of us experience this not because we had the ending ruined for us, but because if you have a favorite story that you've listened to or watched or read, you've probably listened to or watched or read it multiple times, right? Over and over again. If you're anything like me, I come back to my favorites often. And when you know how the story is going to end, it changes the way you, you read the story or you experience the story in a new light. 
All of a sudden, when the storms come, when, when those obstacles that make it seem like the mission has to fail come, when you've read it a second or third time, all of a sudden you can weather the storm. You can get through those because you know it's going to resolve. All of a sudden you begin to see people that you would have missed otherwise. The first time you read a story, these characters seem insignificant, but when you've read it a second time, you know that in the end they become central to the story. All of a sudden you begin to notice shadows of what is to come, don't you? If you've read lots of like murder mysteries or watched thrillers or stuff like this, this, you've experienced this. You know who did it. You know it was the butler with the candlestick in the study. And you read through it a second time and you begin to see it's so obvious. All the clues are right here. You, you start to notice shadows of what's to come. When you know the end of a story, it changes everything about how you engage the rest of the story. Well, last week we started a new series called For All People. And in this series, we're taking a look at not a story, but the story. And in the beginning of the story, we saw last week a world, a perfect creation decimated by sin. We saw relationships between God and humanity broken. We saw shame where there once was trust. We saw blame where there once was safety. And as the world spiraled deeper, deeper, and deeper into sin, the question forced itself to the surface, what is God going to do about this? What is God, what's God's plan to fix this? And so we looked last week at Genesis 12, and we heard God's plan. Do you remember it? God shows up to this mid-70s guy and his wife who have struggled with infertility their whole life, and he tells them, your children are going to be the ones through whom I do my redemptive work. You elderly couple who have no children and have struggled with infertility your whole life. That's your plan, God? In one of these conversations, Abraham and Sarah, this elderly couple, they actually laugh at God for how absurd this plan is. That's why their son is named Isaac, which means he laughs. They laugh at God. This is an absurd plan. God, okay, I don't know if you remember how the human body works. I know you created it and everything, but that ship has kind of sailed for us. We're in our 70s. We're not exactly in what you call prime childbearing years anymore, okay? So what's your plan B? What really are you going to do to fix this? But what we saw last week is that not only is this God's plan A, but there is no contingency. God is going to do his work through the offspring of Abraham and Sarah, or not at all. That's his promise. That's the beginning to our story. And we have to ask ourselves, is that any, is that any place to put our hope? that a middle-aged, or an elderly, rather, couple who have struggled with infertility their whole life, that their children will be the ones through whom God will do his work. Is that a good place to put our hope? And that's a fair question. Especially when you consider what's happened in the four or 5,000 years since that promise until today. Because if anything... The world, our situation, a spiraling into sin has not gotten any better. It seems like it's gotten so much worse. Just this week, again, another story surfaced of a person walking into a public area with a loaded weapon and just opening fire. And that story is becoming the norm of our world. Is this working? Is this getting any better? A guy named John Horgan, who is a scientific journalist and a teacher, he started conducting a study about 10 years ago. It's simple. He would just approach people and ask them one question and record their response to the question. And the question was this. 
Will there ever be a day when humans will stop fighting wars once and for all? And he's asked this question for 10 years over and over again. And what he's found is, at a rate of about 8 or 9 out of 10 times, people answer with a resounding no. Even when he asked that question within the church. Now, I want to suggest this morning that if that kind of hopelessness for the future prospect of all the evils of this world passing away characterizes your mind, you've got the end of the story all wrong. You've got the end of the story all wrong. And so what we're going to do today is spoil the ending to this story. So if you will, if you have a Bible app or a Bible with you, toggle or turn over to Revelation chapter 7. Last week we were in Genesis, the first book. This week we're in Revelation, the last book. And we are going to see... We're going to see the end of the story, and we're going to see together how that, changes we engage, how that changes the way we engage the rest of the story. That is, how do we live our lives right now? So Revelation 7, we'll start in verse 9. If you're using a community Bible, you can find it on page 1032 to give you a head start there. And as you're flipping over there, let me just give you a little bit of context of what we're talking about today. The book of Revelation is written by a guy named John. John was an eyewitness to all of the events of Jesus' ministry. Um, it's likely that John was actually Jesus' best friend during the course of Jesus' ministry. He also, um, in addition to writing all those down in the book of John, we have three other short letters from him called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So creativity and naming, just not an issue at all, obviously. But there you go, John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And also he wrote this letter called Revelation. Towards the end of his life, John gets exiled um, for his faith, for the work he's doing on behalf of the gospel, to this island called Patmos. It's off the west coast of modern-day Turkey. And while he's alone exiled on this island, he receives this series of visions. And this series of visions paints a picture of the end of our story. And he's told to write these down and send them in a letter to these seven churches all throughout modern-day Turkey and by extension to the rest of us to give us hope in the midst of our story. So what we're looking at today is one, just a part of one of those visions. Let's dive in. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked and behold. In other words, after the last vision, this is a new vision. After this, I looked and behold. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, that word could also be translated families, and peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Just picture this with me. This is the end of the movie now, and the scene opens up over this vast landscape full of people, so many people, that they are beyond number. You know, a few weeks ago, a great multitude of people descended on Kansas City to celebrate the World Series victory of the Royals. You guys remember this? You were either a part of this or you saw it all over the news. And by the way, if you're getting sick of all the Royals illustrations, buckle up, it's a long off season, okay? <laughs> this is a massive, massive, massive crowd. I wasn't actually brave enough to go to that rally. I did on my lunch break walk over to the parade route over here, and it was just, if you missed it, all I can say, it was electric. It was unbelievable. This crowd of people all clothed in blue, waving their foam fingers and confetti, shouting, let's go Royals, because they had so much to celebrate, right? We found out 
um, later that this crowd numbered about 800,000 people in total. It was a scary day to live and work downtown, by the way. 800,000 people descended on downtown. The difference is, here in Revelation chapter 7, this crowd is so much bigger than that that it cannot be numbered. Picture this with me. Just a flat landscape. No buildings, no children up on parents' shoulders, no hills, nothing to block your view. And as far as the eye can see in any direction are people. I can feel the introverts kind of clamming up a little bit right now at that picture. <laughs> There's people everywhere. And let me ask you this question. When you picture this crowd, what do you see? Or more importantly, who do you see? If you're anything like me, the people in that crowd probably look a lot like you, probably sound a lot like you, probably are around your age, probably speak whatever language you speak. And look, it's not by malicious intent. It's just when we swim in a cultural uh, milieu for long enough, our vision, our imagination just kind of narrows to that. But this text demands an imagination that is as wide as they come. I mean, imagine this with me. There are people in this crowd that were among the first three generations of people ever to live. There are people in this crowd who maybe saw King David coming back from battle, a victorious king. There are people in this crowd who maybe met Jesus. There are people in this crowd who aren't even close to existing yet. And these people in this crowd are of every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Their languages are preserved. We heard read earlier this text in multiple languages. Think about when this refrain, salvation belongs to our God, rings out in every language ever known. This is the crowd that stands before the throne, which, if we think about it for a second, ought to be a really, really freeing thought. You do not have to abandon your cultural standards or your upbringing in order to stand before the throne. You do not have to learn a different language in order to stand before the throne. This is not what unifies these people. These people are not brought together by their socioeconomic class, by their race, by their gender, by their age, none of that. Instead, John shows us that there are two things that unifies this crowd in our text. In verse 9, the first is that they are clothed in white robes. They are clothed in white robes, these perfect, pure, radiant white robes, the whitest whites you've ever seen. Now, later on in this passage, John has explained to him the significance of these robes. Look down with me at verse 14, chapter 7, verse 14, about halfway through the verses where we'll start. It says, they, these people who are wearing these white robes, they have washed their robes and made them white. Have you ever looked for that miracle formula to like make your whites really, really white? Here it is. In the blood of the lamb. In the blood of the lamb. They have brought their stinking, stained, sin-filled garments to the blood of the lamb and washed them clean. Therefore, verse 15, therefore, because of this, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. 
It is because this crowd has come before the throne of God with their dirty, stinking, sin-filled garments and washed them clean in the blood of the Lamb that they stand in this throne room. And because that is true about them, our text tells us that they are sheltered by the very presence of God. The text goes on to tell us that means they find provision and protection from God himself, the God who spoke them into being. So first, those who stand in the throne room are clothed in white robes. The second, our text tells us, in verse 9, they have palm branches in their hands. They have palm branches in their hands. When we read this, our minds likely automatically will jump to another time when this author, John, tells us about palm branches. Five days before Jesus is going to be hung up on a cross and left for dead, he's entering the city of Jerusalem to a parade of his own. And instead of confetti flying all over the streets, it's palm branches that the people are throwing down in his path. And they cry out to him, Hosanna, which means save us, deliver us. These palm branches are a cultural symbol that point to a victorious king. A victorious, in other words, these people, as Jesus is entering Jerusalem and these people in the crowd in Revelation 7 are saying, this is our victorious, this is our king who has delivered us. But he's unlike any other victorious king because he is not victorious because he has slain his enemies. But he is, he is victorious because he was slain by his enemies. This is a totally different type of king. And when he was slain by his enemies, not three days, and he rose again to a perfect and unending life that we see pictured in this vision, offered to all who will follow him. Now this image, this posture rather, of a slain lamb is key to understanding what it means for us to be submitted to Jesus as our king. Jesus himself told us, when he was on, his, uh, on earth doing his ministry, that it was those who would take up their crosses every single day, die to themselves, die to their own passions, die to their own rights to follow Jesus. It is they who will stand with Jesus in the throne room on the last day. It's not anything other than being washed clean by the blood of Christ and being submitted to his kingship that unifies this crowd that stands in the throne room on the last day day. And to say that is to say that it is nothing else that brings about Abraham's family. That family that was promised way back in Genesis 12 is this multitude that is standing right here in the throne room of God worshiping him. How did I get there? Well, last week we read a verse from, from Galatians chapter 3. Galatians is written by the Apostle Paul. Paul was a Pharisee. He was an expert in Hebrew scriptures. He knew the Old Testament better than he probably had it memorized in Hebrew. Okay, so he knew it better than any of us in this room. And listen to what he has to say. Listen to what he has to say about this promise to Abraham. Galatians 3, verse 29. And if you are Christ's, in other words, if you have been washed clean by the blood of Christ and are submitted to him as your king, then you are Abraham's offspring. Then you are in Abraham's family and you are heirs according to the promise. Everything that was promised to Abraham, those who are Christ stand to inherit. 
And ultimately what they stand to inherit is this, being in the throne room of God for eternity, worshiping him, all the evils and perils of this world behind them forever, living exactly how they were designed to live, being sheltered by God's presence and worshiping him there. This is the end of our story. To sum it up, God gets his family. God gets his family. That family he promised to an elderly, infertile couple all the way back in Genesis 12 is now a multitude that is beyond anyone's ability to number. Here worshiping God, this is the end of the story. God gets his family. But if we read on in our passage, we see that it's not just, God, it's not just God's family who stands in the throne room. Let's jump back in, in verse 11, and see that God's family is company. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. The four living creatures is this really difficult symbol that shows up all throughout Revelation. It either is a type of angel or it could just represent all of creation worshiping God. I'm not really sure which it is, but they're there, four living creatures. And listen to what happens when they hear in this multitude of language the refrain, salvation belongs to our God. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And in case you missed it the first time, Amen. Look, when the multitude proclaims in this wide variety of languages, salvation belongs to our God, all of creation, the whole angelic order, all of Abraham's family fall on their faces and worship God. And how could you not? How could you not respond this way before a God who did exactly what he said he would do, who promised to save for himself a family, who would dwell in his presence forever, and he's done it here. And when that message is proclaimed, the whole created order falls down worshiping him for his goodness, for his faithfulness, for what he has done. This is the end of our story. This is the hope that we have. So what does this mean for us today? If this is the end of our story, how are we supposed to live now in light of the end? Well, I think there are three ways, and we talked about this in the beginning of the message a little bit. There are three ways that this story, that the end of our story, ought to change the way that we live in our lives right now. So let's dive into those three things, and then I'll wrap this up, okay? First, we will weather the storm. We will weather the storm. The first way that you can live with the end in mind, knowing that this is the end to the, of the story for those who are in Christ. You will weather the storm. Look, if you know that Frodo will destroy the ring, if you know that your team's going to win the game in the last second, if you know that Daniel Tiger's visit to the doctor is actually going to go okay, all of a sudden the, the storms of this life lose their ability to derail you. Look, we talked about this in the beginning. I know that in a room this size, there are a variety of storms going on in your lives. Some longer lasting than others, some more severe than others. And as the weight of these storms bear down, bear down on us, at some point it can be easy to just topple over and be done. 
if that describes you this morning, please hear this text say, do not quit. Do not give up trusting in and pursuing and following Jesus Christ. If you are in Jesus, the storm that is in your life right now is not the end of your story. This is the end of your story. There will be a day when every storm will pass away, when you will stand in God's presence, perfected and worshiping him exactly how you were designed to be. Don't quit. Do not give up. I've heard it said before that rarely in this life are our choices between what is right and what is wrong. And more often, they are between what is right and what is easy. Because when the storms of this life bear down on us, often presents itself a very easy way out. That would mean us turning our back on God. Don't do it. Don't take the easy way out. Do not quit pursuing God. Because this storm is not the end of your story. Now, that's all well and good for, for those of us who are currently following Christ, who have submitted our lives to Christ. But what about those in this room who are listening who haven't taken that step, who are not sure that following Christ is the way? Well, with all the humility and love I can muster, please hear me say this. You will not weather the storm. Not forever. Eventually, the storms of this life will become too much to bear and eventually they will overtake you. But notice, notice the stature of every single person standing in this room. They are standing in the throne room. They have not fallen and crumpled under the weight of life's storms, but they stand before Jesus precisely because they were washed clean of their sin and they remain submitted to Jesus. So if this morning you're not following him, you're not submitted to him, you're not trusting him alone, for the forgiveness of your sins. Let me implore you, let this text implore you to turn away from your life where you are your own king or queen and be submitted to the Savior who will allow you to stand on the last day. If you have any questions about what that looks like, come find me or really anyone around who looks like they know what they're doing. Talk to them after the service. We would love to tell you all about what it means to follow Jesus. So first, when we know the end of the story, we can weather the storm. Second, when we know the end of the story, we can see those we've missed. We can see those people who in the middle of the story, story don't seem as significant, but at the end we see they are in the throne room worshiping with us. Last week, Gabe brought uh, Sarah and Lance up to share about Christ Community's uh, reorganized efforts to engage the global uh, Christian church in church planning efforts. Because God wants a family for all people and from all people. So we have partnered with church planning efforts in the Middle East, East Asia, East Africa, and Central Europe so that we can be a part of the family God is building for himself. Now listen, these relationships will only stand to hurt us and our partners if they're not reciprocal. This is not we, Christ community, have everything figured out and now we're going to go out into the world with our wisdom about what it means to plant churches. Instead, when we see this vision in Revelation 7, when we see the end of the story, we realize we have so much left to learn. There are so many people in this world who can teach us so much about what it means to be submitted to Jesus Christ and what it means to be about growing this family. And by God's grace, we have a thing or two we might be able to give as well. 
Look, our temptation is often to do just that, to go out into the world and say, we've got everything figured out. Look at our churches. Look at our prosperity. We're going to fix all this. But listen to this quote, and you've heard this before, from Brian Fickert, who is a professor of uh, economics and community development. Listen to what he says. The goal should not be to turn New Delhi into New York. The goal should be for both to look more like the New Jerusalem. When we see this vision in Revelation 7, we know there's a lot about us that doesn't look like the New Jerusalem. And we also know that there's a lot about our organizational partners that also doesn't look like the New Jerusalem. So we partner with them so that together we can learn to see those in our world right now who God is bringing into his family, both here in Kansas City, where we're heavily, heavily invested, but to the corners of the earth as well. So what about you? Who are the others in your life who you often miss? They could be across the world. They could be across the room. They could live a few blocks away from you. I don't know who they are. But you know, often it's the monotony of our daily routines that kind of blind us and narrow our vision. Like a horse with blinders on, we only have eyes for what is proximate and what is urgent. So what does it look like to take off those blinders and begin to see those who will stand with us in the last day in the throne room of God? It might look like something as simple as going to a different neighborhood to shop for your groceries than you normally do. It might look like something as simple as looking for authors to read who don't look or sound like you. That's something we pastors need a lot of work on. Parents, ask yourselves, what environments are you creating to expose your children to other tribes, nations, and tongues who will stand with them in the last day. We need to be about seeing others who in the end of the story we know are important because they are a part of our family. Okay, and third, we need to see or notice rather the shadows of what is to come because in these shadows is where we find our hope. All throughout the Old Testament, Abraham himself included, are shadows, are people and events that point forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. And as we read through that lens and understand that Jesus was always the plan, we find hope that God is doing and will do and is going to do and has done what he said he would do. And the same is true for our lives right now. Anytime you see the poor being housed and fed, Anytime you see the fatherless finding a family and a home, anytime you see the sick being healed, anytime you see broken being restored, all of these are shadows of what is to come when restoration and wholeness and family and belonging is the only thing we will know. That day is coming. You know, uh, earlier this week we celebrated Thanksgiving, which is meant to be a time where we step aside from our routines and we take stock of all that we have to be thankful for. And this discipline of counting our blessings is one that helps us not only find contentment and rest for our restless hearts, but also to find shadows of what is to come at the end of our story. And when we engage these disciplines regularly, we begin to see that that actually helps us weather the storm and see those that we've missed. So this week, let me encourage you, Find 10 minutes each day, or maybe it's an extended amount of time one day this week, to sit back and to count your blessings, to consider the things in your life that are shadows of what is to come, 
that point you to this scene in Revelation 7. Because in that, you will find hope. Look, uh, this is one story whose end we ought to be constantly spoiling. I mean as much as we can. Because we know, that the, we know the hope that it holds for us. We know that when we face the storms of this life, or when we regularly miss the people who are actually important to our family, or when we miss the shadows of what is to come, there is a hope that exists for us in the end of this story that no one else can have. Nobody has this hope. Earlier this morning, Frank lit the first candle of the Advent candles, which is the hope candle. And the hope candle is centered on the fact that because Jesus has come, we have this hope that Revelation 7 can and will come true. If you come back next week, we'll talk much more about why Jesus gives us that hope. But before then, John Horgan, the answer to your question is yes. There will be a day when humans stop fighting wars once and for all. And I cannot wait for that day to come. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the visions you gave John, for preserving them in this written text so that we could find hope in what we know is the end of our story. And God, truly, it's not because of anything we've done and only because of what you do and are doing and will do that we can have this hope. So God grants as we go forth this week in this Advent season that our lives would be marked by a hope that the world cannot believe exists. And Lord, in the last day when we stand before you, may the only refrain of our mouths be that salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. It is in the name of that Lamb, slain for us, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.